Welcome to MI Cynic, the podcast with a license to inform. This is your host, Thomas Brancato. Today, I am welcoming back Dr. Yannick Villulipage to continue our discussion on the evolving landscape of terrorism. I want to turn our attention to another case study by which we see the, the applications of uh, the, the concepts of transmission, replication and adoption. Again, these are the, some of the main themes that you deal with in your work. I was interested in how you would apply these three functions in this case study, which is, a, of course, a, a modern example of a highly complex terrorist environment. And in specific, looking at um, the 2017 Manchester bombings, something that I've spoken about on a recent podcast, as we're just over the four-year anniversary of the attacks in Manchester caused by a 22-year-old Salman Abidi. Of course, he blew himself in that attack and uh, took down with him mostly young people that were uh, just leaving an Ariana Grande concert. Now, what I think is very interesting in, in this example is that the device in, in question uh, was a homemade shrapnel laden device. Do you think that the ability to manufacture this uh, device as seemingly at home was the, the product of a transmission replication and adoption? And how do you see that fitting into this story? Yeah, so a great deal of my work essentially tries to answer three, three questions, uh, other things that keep me up at night. But essentially, how is it that new techniques come about? How are they transmitted? And what leads to the adoption or rejection of a, of a particular technique? And if we're looking at this particular case, we can essentially ask these three questions. So the innovation in itself uh, from technical kind of standpoint is, is this uh, shrapnel-laden uh, uh, IED. Uh, and this isn't something that this individual invented. Um, there is a long history uh, of, of IEDs and particularly of suicide bombers uh, that you know, goes back to, to uh, the Hezbollah campaign against um, foreign occupation of, of Lebanon in uh, the 1980s. And then with innovation coming from the LTTE um, in Sri Lanka, the who essentially created the, the suicide vest. So the innovation itself doesn't really apply to that. Other people came up with, with these ideas. Now, what's interesting to me is uh, the transmission of, of the know-how, the knowledge of this particular technique. And there's, in this case, there's a lot of different types of knowledge that had to be transmitted in order for this attack to take place, right? So there's technical knowledge, how to build a particular bomb, but also knowledge about how do you carry out a, a successful suicide bombing attack. And generally speaking, there's two ways that knowledge is transmitted. And this is every type of knowledge, uh, from cooking recipe to language to how to engage in a, in a terrorist attack. The first one has to do with what we call relational ties, um, which is essentially a kind of teacher-learner relationship. So when somebody conveys knowledge to a student and the student can ask questions and this is how it's it, it, it's transmitted. The second type has to do with what we call non-relational ties. And this can either be when the, the learner, the person who's trying to gain this new knowledge, observes someone from afar. So they see a similar attack and they say, ah, okay, I'm going to, to carry this out. 
or they get the information from a third party. So that can be propaganda. It can be news report. Um, it can also be an adversarial group. Uh, so we know, for example, that vehicle ramming as a strategy was transmitted from the Palestinian to uh, Jihadist Lafis, particularly ISIS, and now is being used quite extensively by the far right. But it's not like the far right hung out in a bar with a bunch of ISIS guys and you know shared lessons learned or whatnot, right? So the far right adopted this technique by observing it from afar. So in this particular case, we have to ask ourselves, how was this, you know, what type of knowledge was transmitted and how was it transmitted? Uh, did he receive direct instructions or was he able to find instructions online, for example, or, or in other cases? And what's quite interesting is that when you are dealing with non-relational transmission, so you don't have this teacher-learner relationship, there's a lot more knowledge gaps that are created. Um, and, and this leads to, to other variation. It can lead to new innovation, but it can also lead to, to, to mistakes. And then the last aspect of this kind of equation is the adoption, right? So why did he commit this attack? Now, I'm not talking about why did he commit a terrorist attack, but why did he decide this particular manifestation? Why did he use this particular technique? And to me, there's really, there's, there's three ways of, there's three factors that come into play. One has to do with the feasibility. How feasible is this attack vis-a-vis -vis another type of techniques? Um, and, and generally something like a VBID or an ID attack are sophisticated attacks but they require a lot less kind of organizational structure and a lot less funding than one of the more kind of grandiose attacks that we can think of, something like 9-11, uh, for example. The next aspect has to do with legitimacy. And this has to do with how the perpetrator thinks or what the perpetrator thinks of a particular technique, whether or not it is just and right within their wider kind of like ideological framework in which they're operating, but also whether the, in the case of, of, of a lone wolf, if you want, or a non-affiliate sympathizer, whether this technique seems to be something that is going to be accepted by the wider social movement in which they're trying to, to appeal to or their constituency. And then the last one has to do with effectiveness. And this is simply a calculation that, that terrorists do about which technique, which type of attack is more likely to lead to the wider goals of, of, of myself or my organization? And in the case of you know, feasibility, feasibility, legitimacy, and effectiveness, we know that the groups like the Islamic State have tried to reduce those barriers that exist. And they've done this through their, their, uh, their propaganda and uh, particularly instructional material. So starting with Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, who started with their uh, DIY terrorism magazine or section as part of their, their magazine, Inspire, uh, but also with, um, with the Islamic State, with Dabiq and Rumiya, uh, providing kind of ideological justifications for, for such attacks, but also know-how. So for example, explaining how you can engage in a vehicle ramming attack what are the best place to stab someone in order to, to, to increase the chances a person will, uh, will die as a result of their, their wounds. So that's where my model uh, of innovation, transmission, and, uh, and adoption 
comes in when I look at any type of terrorist attack. It's almost, it's almost baffling to, to me and, and perhaps to some of the viewers that this, this amount of thinking and uh, planning and strategizing and theorizing can go hand in hand with the decision to end one's life and take as many innocents as possible. It almost seems, to me at least, as, as not an expert in these topics, uh, baffling how, uh, how that can be achieved, because it would almost stand to reason for me that to reach that point, one must also have lost one's mind, effectively. But quite clearly, with what you're describing, it's not the case. It's There's a lot of clear thinking. And perhaps that speaks a lot about the incredible drug-like uh, influence of, of ideology and uh, what we're talking about today, which is extremism. But, you know, it's, it's almost funny because in the word extremism, you'd think somebody that's gone to the extreme, uh, you know, can't possibly sit down and, and hold sober thoughts. But it's not the case, quite clearly, because uh, of all the, the planning that uh, that was involved in the decisions that were effectively taken, which led up to the uh, the case study in, in question in Manchester. Well, thank you for that. Now, I, I want to shoot back at you a quote that I read in one of your articles uh, for the ECCY. This is Control Hate Print. And on that article, you wrote this. On the 14th of June, Dean Morris, a former army driver and neo-Nazi, was sentenced to 18 years in prison for 10 terrorism-related offences. A 2020 police raid of his home led to the discovery of chemical precursors to make explosives, two 3D printers, and instructions on how to manufacture 3D-printed firearms and parts. In the article, you argue that Right-wing extremists might be particularly attracted to the prospects of being able to manufacture their own weapons without any government oversight. And certainly, this would go in line with what we've been discussing before about an illegible underworld of transmission of ideas, but now perhaps transmission of material through these uh, new technologies. Do you see the spread of these 3D farms extending into the new future? And what kind of challenges will they pose? Yeah, so I think in, in many ways that future is is already here uh, to some extent. And there's a couple of things that I think is important to think about before we kind of go down this rabbit hole. The first one is the individual's ability to manufacture firearm is something that's existed for, for quite some time. So in uh, during the, the Vietnam War, um, there's the emergence of, uh, of slam shotguns. Uh, we've seen criminals creating, uh, you know, creating or having labs and factories to allow them to, to make firearms using a bunch of different text, uh, techniques like milling and, and casting and, and so on. But what's interesting with adhesive technology or 3D printers is simply how easy the process can become but also how much more democratized that technology has been. So 10 years ago, a 3D printer was extraordinarily expensive. Now you can get a, a, you know, a good piece of kit for a couple of hundred euros. The other thing that we've seen emerge is a huge body of knowledge on how to create firearms using 3D printers. And the majority of people that are going out and creating these firearms with 3D printers are not criminals. They're hobbyists. 
the majority of them operate in the United States, where the fabrication of such firearm is mostly legal, uh, provided that it, it, it falls within a, a, there's a few restrictions, but the fabrication is mostly legal. So most of the people that engage in this, that create these files, um, either fall in the camp of, of firearm enthusiasts or 3D printing enthusiasts. And the other thing I think is also quite important to keep in mind is that within the context of the United States, there is much easier ways for somebody to obtain a firearm. You can buy it legally. You can buy it illegally. You can steal it. Uh, you can buy it under another pretense. And this is what Brevik and this is what Terrence did, both in countries which had you know, much less permissive firearm laws than the United States. They both registered themselves as part of a, a, a firearms club in order to, to be able to, to purchase uh, their weapons. So 3D printed firearms aren't kind of changing everything. However, what we do know is that in countries where firearm access is much more restricted, places like Germany or Canada, uh, 3D printed firearms can become quite appealing for terrorists, but also for, for common criminals. So in Spain, there was a large 3D printer, 3D printed firearm factory that was disbanded a, a few months ago. Uh, that was run by, by a criminal outfit that were then selling their, these guns to, to, to criminals. But where I think is particularly interesting is where there's an overlap as well, particularly in the United States, between this technology and kind of a wider ideological um, impetus. And that has to do with the fact that there's a large overlap in the United States between the far right and the survivalist movement. And 3D printed or the technology that comes with 3D printers have been has been seen in many ways within the survivalist circle as as a game changer, allowing individuals to kind of break off from the kind of wider tethers of, of society and gain access to, to, to the means of production uh, and, and means of production without government oversight. So I think that becomes very appealing to the place where there's this overlap between the far right and and survivalists. Well, I was just going to add, you know, that this is another interesting remark. If we take it for granted that perhaps terrorism itself hasn't changed uh, in since the time immemorial, at the nature of it, but perhaps the the tools um, that proliferates these type of terrorism to unseen heights. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that's a very good assessment. And it kind of goes back to, to one of my slight pet peeve within uh, histories of terrorism, where scholars talk about some of the, the biggest development in the history of political violence, you know, the printing press, dynamite, and the internet. And yes, those three things have profound impacts in the way political violence is manifested. But that's because they completely change the nature of society as a whole. I mean, the printing press is probably one of the most important invention of mankind. So it, it goes without saying that it changed the way we engage in political violence and the way that we, we communicate you know, political claims. And same goes with, with dynamite and, and, and the internet. So I think that's a very good assessment is the fact that as technology emerges, as technology becomes democratized, becomes more accessible, the nature or, or the techniques and the means that are used by terrorists are going to change. Because at the end of the day, 
there is somewhat of a cat and mouse game that goes on. And terrorists are terrorists operate in an extremely hostile environment, right? So you've got the state that are trying to, to counter them, imprison them, or, or, or destroy the organization. At the same time, you've got other terrorist groups that might have a similar claim, and there's, there's competition between them. So if you look, for example, at Al-Qaeda and ISIS, you can see this example of two groups that have very similar ideological goals, but have been in a constant feud for the last you know, 10 years or so. So as a result of that, terrorists need to innovate. And, and one way of innovating is by leveraging new technologies and new possibilities that, that come with these emerging technologies. One of the things when we study the genocides, especially in the 20th century, but in, in other times in history, is the, the almost the prerequisite for the dehumanization and the objectification of the other. This was especially evident in World War II and in Nazi Germany during the Holocaust, but in other cases of history as well. I wonder if that is also the case, and and what your opinion might be about whether in terrorism we can we can make a similar analogy that for the terrorist to find justification for the act of terror and the taking of lies, there must be an implicit dehumanization of the other. What are your thoughts on that? So I think the act of political violence has to be legitimized by the group in some fashion. And that can be demonization of, of the adversary, but it can also be rhetoric about kind of evening out the playing field. And, and we saw this particularly um, in the early 2000s when Hamas was trying to defend itself uh, and defend its use of suicide bombing in Israel against civilian population. And some of the arguments that were brought forward by by, um, Hamas um, ideologues, uh, spokesperson, was essentially the nature that the conflict between Israel and um, Palestinian Liberation Organization was an inherently ace- there was a large imbalance in capabilities and means and suicide bombing essentially allowed Hamas to even out the playing field. One of the quotes that I'm paraphrasing is essentially goes along the lines of if they give us warplanes and warships and tanks, then we'll fight them evenly. But right now this, these are the tools that we have at our disposal. Again, this is, a rough uh, paraphrase, but this is how the argument kind of came about. So yeah, demonization is, is an aspect of it, but I think there's also some of it just comes down to, to a cold calculation of often it is impossible to hit the state itself in order to bring forward one's claim and hitting softer target, hitting civilian population has been seen uh, to be effective. And we have many examples in human history of terrorism actually succeeding despite despite the fact that this is not a comfortable reality, um, this does occur. Well, and I wonder if that was, is also something that we can, when we analyze the events at Utoya, about whether Breivik, essentially what allowed him to go through with that horrible attack was the, the complete dehumanization of, of those present. You know, e- even anonymous as they were to him, even as 
as no relation existed between them. And um, and I wonder if this is the exact same thing that uh, in your example of Hamas we are seeing as well, and, and in many other cases of, of terrorism as well, it um, the other becomes a, a faceless enemy, which perhaps makes the entire thing uh, trickier to deal with and uh, certainly more... Uh, a lot more damage is possible in uh, in a shorter amount of time and uh, and manpower required when your enemy is in the millions and any strike is a, is is a worthy strike so this becomes quite challenging uh, to tackle effectively but to finish off our discussion um we've talked a little bit now about dehumanization Perhaps to end the podcast on a slightly more positive note if if that can be done in an academic manner. Let's talk about rehumanization, which is a word that I've come to in an earlier podcast when we were speaking about it in terms of the mediation process between countries. But I wonder if we can extrapolate that and talk about rehumanization as a potential, if not cure, then at least a tool that we can use when we're looking at the terrorism movements of the future. Do you think that that rehumanization might play a part? Do you think that a politics of rehumanization from Western governments outwards uh, might reinforce values of of shared humanity? So I think that's a really interesting question. It's one that falls a bit outside of my area of expertise, but I can still take a a bit of a a slightly educated stab in the dark, uh, if you will. And one of the things I find interesting, and this is mostly anecdotal, but I've had the chance uh, to spend quite some time with, with former far-right extremists, uh, people, some of them have done prison time for, for you know, uh, aggravated assault against uh, minorities, some of them who have been heads of, of um, clandestine cells and, and, and so on, Americans and Canadians and, and British. And what becomes quite interesting to me is if you ask them about kind of what, what led to their their, their, their progressive exit out of the movement. And generally, it's not just one particular event. It's a series of, uh, of, of events. But often one of the themes that comes out, and at least one of the themes I've noticed, is this notion of compassion. Having been given compassion by somebody that they saw as, uh, as an enemy or somebody that was seen as... Um, uh, as their adversary. Uh, and that seems in, in many of them, at least again, and I don't want to speak for, for their, their lived experience. And I, I strongly encourage your, your listeners that if you're, if they're interested in the tales of formers to take a bit of time. And there's a lot of great organizations where they can hear these stories. Uh, so free radical being one of them. Uh, but, but there's a lot of, again, there's exit Dutch land as well. And there, there, there's many more. Um, but it does seem that an aggressive, in your face, you are wrong, you are on the right, right, wrong path, seems to get people more entrenched. And sometimes showing compassion leads to this kind of large break in, in their worldview. Now, how do you operationalize that on a grand scale? I don't know. Uh, and I think this is this is really the hard question and countless of millions of dollars have been invested in, in DRAD program, de-radicalization program uh, throughout the world. And unfortunately, what seems to have happened is while we invested a, 
bunch of money in and a bunch of programs, anything from, you know, counter messaging ad to, you know, former jihadis writing poetry um, is that we didn't invest a lot of money in program evaluation and trying to figure out, okay, what are the programs that work and why do some of these programs work while other fails and what are the, the lessons learned? So people's opinion, people's behaviors can change and there's definitely paths toward that. How to do it, I'm not quite sure, but there seems to be some anecdotal evidence that, that yeah, reunionization, to use your term. And, you know, and we can certainly, and thank you for that, Yannick, but I think we can certainly look at the, the specific that can be studied and we can do evaluations and case studies and compare and contrast and all the rest of it. But I think what's really interesting about your, your response is almost a, a cursory look at how it's... The way that I see it in my head, it's almost as if there's two two demons at uh, at one's uh, shoulders, or sorry, the demon and the angel, and one of which is saying, "If you hit me with fire, I'll hit you back with a bigger fire, a bigger bomb, or whatever it is." And perhaps under that uh, revengeful approach, self righteous approach, justified approach, over mighty and zealous approach. You know, we're looking at 20 years in Afghanistan, just to name a, a recent example, and say, okay, well, what what exactly was achieved in a sense? Because, you know, the Taliban is back in government and after billions of dollars and lives lost, et cetera, et cetera, I wouldn't necessarily say the country is uh, any any more or less um, hostile and uh, to, to Western values, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, there is always that other compassionate choice that we can choose that says, okay, maybe we can achieve more at a negotiation table than we necessarily can under helicopters and bombs and planes. And I think the really interesting thing that you're alluding to is not so much a methodology per se, but a choice of outlook. And that that choice in outlook, if it's based on compassion and based on understanding, might offer a lot more tangible benefits and a more peaceful way forward, perhaps, than the path of recrimination, revenge, and uh, and criminalization or demonization or whatever it is. So I think that's a that's a really interesting reply and uh, quite a hopeful one too going forwards and in, in understanding um, how we can make this century a, a little bit less violent and hateful and and a safer place than, than the last one. But on that note, Yannick, I would simply like to offer a dedication of this podcast to the life lost 10 years ago in Utoya, uh, as well as those four years ago in, in Manchester and all the other victims of terrorism. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I really hope we can discuss some more of these details in a later podcast together. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And that concludes the final part of my interview with Dr. Yannick Villulipage on the subject of political violence, terrorism and extremism in today's world. And I hope you'll stay with us for the next episodes that we've got planned. Please remember to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube and more. And of course, to check out our website for the latest episodes. Thank you so much and have a great day.